Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Long Final, Ireland's aviation podcast from Squawk 7000. Hello and welcome to this episode of Long Final. I'm Michael Cummins. This week we're talking with some of the committee of ILAS, the Irish Light Aviation Society. ILAS represents pilots and builders and restorers of light aircraft that operate under a permit to fly. Their members build their own aircraft from kits or plans and restore classic and vintage aircraft. They operate a system of initial and ongoing airworthiness inspection for their fleet and supervise home build and restoration projects under a delegation from the Irish Aviation Authority. Well, joining me from their remote locations today are Carl Connell, Michael Bergen, Charles O'Shea, Noel Murphy, and their chairman, Noel Marr. You're all very welcome. Noel, can I start with you? What's the history and background to the organisation? Well, ILAS, I suppose, firstly, I should mention, is the result of an amalgamation between the Society of Amateur Aircraft Constructors and the Classic Aircraft and Aerobatic Club of Ireland, which uh, happened back in 2009. So this is the 13th year of ILAS, and uh, I suppose there was an obvious... uh, purpose in the two societies joining because uh, while SAC were involved in the amateur building of aircraft, ILAS was more involved in the um, restoration of classic and vintage aircraft. So it was a natural sort of marriage at the time. But perhaps maybe cheating a little bit, I should say that we do have a set of objectives which were laid down by one of our colleagues, uh, Brian Douglas, who passed away some years ago. Uh, Brian set out objectives for us, which were handed down to us and approved at a subsequent AGM. And I'll just gallop through those because it gives Mm. a flavour of what ILAS is about and what we're trying to achieve. Uh, I I won't uh, read them out verbatim, but the first one is basically to promote uh, the promotion of amateur aircraft construction in Ireland. Uh, the, the second one was to support the preservation and operation of classic and vintage aircraft in Ireland. And the third, uh, which was a carryover from the, the, the Classic Aeroplane Club, was the, uh, to support and promote the sport of aerobatics among its members. Um, fourthly, to provide support to all ILAS-administered aircraft uh, through the operation of a flight permit scheme. Uh, as authorised by the Irish Aviation Authority. So we have special approval to operate uh, with such scope from from the IAA. And that's renewed annually, uh, subject to annual audit and review and so on. The the other objective was to provide leadership in the achievement of low-cost flying through cooperation and partnership with like-minded bodies and appropriate representation at all level. And we've, we're proud of the fact that we've managed to keep our subscription, our annual subscription, uh, at €40 Euros since we we've, were formed 13 years ago. And we pride ourselves on the fact that we try to keep costs. And that's the main attraction, I think, of permit aviation. What I'd also like to do, obviously, is to get you to introduce the uh, people who've joined us on the call this evening. Who else is here? Sure. Well, first of all, just to welcome my colleagues, uh, Noel Murphy, who is on Secretary of 
of, of ILAS and currently um, acting uh, membership secretary also. Then we have uh, our colleague Charles O'Shea. Uh, Charles is permit secretary and uh, is the man who keeps us going and keeps us all flying, which is the core business of the society. Um, then we have Michael Bergen. My, Michael is, um, is a committee member and uh, he's also our representative on the, um, on the EFLEVA committee, which is a European umbrella organization. Basically, EFLEVA is the European Federation of Light, Experimental and Vintage Aircraft. And Michael is also our representative on uh, GASCI, the General Aviation Safety Council of Ireland. Um, and then Cahill, uh, last but not least, uh, Cahill is a member of ILAS. He operates both a, an amateur-built aircraft, I think, and a, and a classic and vintage aircraft, and is currently editor of, of our newsletter, which is a task he, he volunteered for. He might regret it. He took this task on last I year. I beg to differ. I might give the suggestion that he was volunteered for it. But anyway, that's a different Possibly, story. Certainly, uh, we, at this stage, Cahill, we have two um, issues under our belt. And uh, I think we're going from strength to strength. And in, particularly in the present climate with COVID and restrictions and people not meeting up and no fly-ins, it's been great to provide a, a, a means of communication among members. Uh, and it is interesting because, you know, when we started the idea of having a chat with you, we were think I was certainly thinking back uh, uh, and reminiscing about when people might have started flying many years ago. There were very few outlets and you went possibly to a flying club or a flying school and it became extremely expensive. Is that part of the, the motivation uh, be behind the work that, you, that you're all doing? Noel, I see you're, you're nodding. Noel Murphy. Yes, uh, exactly, Michael. Um, to buy even a second-hand aircraft that that carries a, cert um, a certificate of airworthiness and is used maybe for flight training, that is going to be quite expensive no matter how you do it. And then the maintenance of that usually costs a significant amount as well, uh, sufficiently so that really it can only be operated by a fairly large group or a club. So the vintage aircraft and the home-built aircraft are actually a way of getting involved in aviation without necessarily a huge outlay. But of course, you have to do something and that's usually a sort of sweat equity that you have to put into the aircraft uh, one way or the other. So yes, and in my case, I, um, my nephew and myself operate a 1940 Piper J5, Echo India, Tango India Mike, and we fly that out of trim. Uh, it's a, a tandem aircraft, a single engine. Um, and uh, actually, it came out of the factory the same week that McDonald's was founded. <laughs> and also then, uh, my nephew and myself are building a Vans or V8. And that's almost the opposite end of the light aircraft spectrum. It's a 200 mile per hour metal aircraft. Uh, and I'm about, I'd say about a third of the way through building that at the moment. So uh, really enjoyable. I, I did it because... Um, it was a way of not spending 24 hours a day at work and just trying to get my get my head out of that particular quagmire. And uh, I really enjoy it. I uh, enjoy the sort of physical activity involved in it. And Olmar, what we're doing by this stage now, I think, is we're beginning to define what, what is, in fact, uh, an aircraft that comes under the, your categories. So classical and then home-built. Can you define those two, classic aircraft and home-built? Well, first of all, there's a very strict definition, which is an IASA definition of what is now called an Annex 1 aircraft. So it's, if you like, it's excluded from the basic regulation. And uh, 
The definition effectively is an aircraft that's been designed before uh, 19, sorry, between 1955 and 1965 or, and manufactured before 1975. Now there are exceptions and some applications are treated, but that's roughly the, the general scope. But they would all be ex-factory aircraft that would have held an ICAO C of A at a point in, 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 its, in its life. Uh, that's the classic and vintage, very, very crudely. Um, the amateur built uh, can be a combination of scratch built aircraft, can be kit built aircraft, uh, slow kit building, uh, you know, uh, quick build kit, kit building, and variations in between. And the materials can range from uh, rag and tube to composites to metal, and there is all variations of that as well, including uh, gyroplanes. There are a number of um, uh, ILAS operated um, gyroplanes within that category as well and then the the other category we have in uh, it's only been added in recent years has been the uh, factory built gyroplanes we got approval after an application to the IA about 10 years ago to uh, sorry less than 10 years ago but five years ago maybe to add uh, factory built gyroplanes and uh, they are as as described they come straight from the factory and we currently would have Charles, I think about 10 aircraft on permit. It totals 10 at the moment. We have uh, inspectors approved by ILAS, and uh, at the various stage of the build, they check the machine out and they sign off with what is known as a build book. And uh, this is acceptable to the IAA as uh, the work is being carried out in accordance with the requirements. How was the, the journey towards getting that ultimate approval to the idea that, that you as an organisation would be the people who would manage those permits? Well, I suppose if you go back, I can only speak for the SAC side of things, but uh, the first man to put through uh, or to get a permit was Michael Donoghue. His aircraft was AYY, uh, which is still uh, extant. In fact, Michael Bergen uh, can tell me, how is it progressing at the moment, Michael? No, actually, we started back doing a bit of work on it two or three weeks ago. Um, I'm just uh, making some inquiries about different power plants, possibly for it. Um, so that's uh, that's where we're at with it. Yeah, well, the, the, um, the, the, the particular aircraft was an Evans VP-1, and uh, it's a wooden structure. And it had a, um, a Volkswagen engine in it, a six, 1600cc VW engine. And Mike was the first, he had some, it took him some <laughs> effort to get the, uh, the permit approved. But it, from that it rolled out and it's been satisfactory ever since. Nolmar, can you expand on that a little bit for me about the idea, I suppose, that for, for people who are curious about how an organisation like yourselves relates to the IAA, to the Irish Aviation Authority? What's the relationship? Well, look, uh, it, it's a very important part of, of our organisation because clearly we couldn't function without the support and the cooperation from the IAA. And maybe just briefly to loop back to Charles' point about the first aircraft, which was the Evans Volksplane. Uh, and I think it's fair to say and give credit to, to uh, McDonoughue. He was the man who pioneered the permit concept. And uh, he um, 
operated with, it was the Department of Transport in those days. And I think we're going back to around 1970. And he was a member of SAC, but he actually pioneered the concept and then extended it from there and developed the organization. So that's quite, um, you know, quite quite a, a long time ago. I mean, you're talking virtually 50 years ago, um, which which is amazing, really. And uh, but the IEA uh, were central to all of that every step of the way. And the Society of Amateur Aircraft Constructors were the first to get a flight permit system approved in Ireland uh, in the in the 1970s. And uh, uh, Khaki, our Classic Aeroplane Club, were some years afterwards. Uh, I think we came on board around 1990, in fact. Uh, it was a slightly easier exercise for us because all the aircraft had previously been C of A aircraft, so there wasn't such an unknown in terms of the airworthiness aspect of it. But I'd have to say that um, the IEA and ourselves, I would like to think, work you know, in partnership. Um, and without the cooperation and the mutual trust that's there, we could not function uh, because of the safety aspects and the need to maintain uh, the need to maintain um, a, a panel of of, uh, of inspectors. Uh, it's probably worth uh, just dovetailing what Noel has said there. That um, so we have a, a there's a very formal relationship between ourselves and the IA as well, and it's set out in our. Uh, National Maintenance Organization Procedures Manual. Uh, and that really defines the set of things that we can do. So the IAA appoints an inspector each year to oversee our activities, both our operation of our procedures and the operation of those designated inspectors that I think Charles mentioned. So each individual builder or owner like myself, we'll have a, an inspector allocated by ILAS to, to oversee our work. So we're educating ourselves, we're being educated by the organization and by our uh, by our designated inspectors, but the whole process then is overseen by this IAA inspector, and they have an annual review of our procedures as well, so that we we usually have to update our procedures manual uh, following that process each year. So the way you're describing the organisation, it provides a great deal of support for people either as owners of classic aircraft or those people who are building themselves. For anybody who's involved in the building process, do you provide psychological support as well? Um, look, I, I, this is it's an it's a this is a hobby. It's something you do to wind down after a day's work. It's a, a relaxation. You don't need to be an expert to build an airplane. And maybe that's something that people are, think you might need to be. You need to be curious. Uh, you need to be precise and you need to be prepared to go out to that hangar or the workshop maybe day after day for about an hour or so and make some progress with the aircraft. But you don't need special skills. Uh, you can learn everything you need on in the process. And the kits that we build or the plans that we build from are very detailed. And they just, if you can, people say that if you can hang a picture, you can build an aeroplane. <laughs> listen, I can't build anything from Ikea. I'm not going to be worried about that. I'm just curious about how many projects are begun versus how many are actually complete. Well, there's some interesting statistics on that. Maybe Charles might give us an indication uh, because... Uh, the, the scene has changed somewhat since the uh, kits came on the market. I would say that 85%, 85-90% of them are completed. Whereas when it was plans only, 
1% of the plans sold were completed. Wow. It was a, an onerous task because you had to source everything. And believe you me, that can be a, a problem sometimes. Whereas if it comes in in kit form, <laughs> you have everything. As Noel can uh, back me up on this, everything is supplied. But but I think the, the word finish there is uh, fairly flexible uh, because um, some people, uh, and we, we heard there about a, an RV7 that was completed in the last couple of weeks. Maybe some of my colleagues might Indeed, talk we, about yeah. it. Uh, but, you know, you might have a couple of people working steadily on it over two years or so, and they can can bring uh, something to a successful conclusion. In other cases, you might have one person working over 25 years or a, a kit or a project gets sold from one person to another and somebody else mm -hmm. completes it. So there are various uh, means by which the airplane eventually arrives in the air. Carl O'Connell, you've uh, the uh, as a grand title of the uh, editor as well of the newsletter. So I'm going to tap you for an insight as to what are the concerns of members at the moment? There's certainly, there's a lot of regulation and a lot of change, which my colleagues on the call here will, will know in detail that we've had a lot of uh, changes to regulations. We've got 600 kilo changes coming in and so on. So there's quite a lot to keep on top of. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the areas. But to be very honest, Michael, I think when we look at the overall membership and the overall what people are trying to achieve here, there there aren't that amount of specific regulations that block people from what they're trying to do. It's quite a very great, it's a very good regime that keeps uh, members motivated and incentivized to actually fly. And I think when people look at what's happening in, in the market, the sort of flying people are trying to do, being in a permit aircraft is really, it gives you a freedom that wasn't there before. So maybe I could kind of convert your, your question into uh, what concerns do pilots in general have? And I'm probably a very typical example of somebody who grew up flying Cessnas, flying Pipers, and reached the kind of a crossroads in flying that said, look, what am I doing here now? So I'm flying uh, all the usual things, do your trips with friends, bring them all, go trips to the Isle of Man, trips to the UK. I instructed for 10 years. But eventually you reach a point in your flying that you kind of say, well, why am I doing this now? Am I doing it for fun? And if you're doing it for fun, it really, you, 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 it, it, it can be quite costly. And I think the, the, the issue uh, facing a lot of pilots, particularly a lot of private pilots right now, is how to actually financially justify flying. If you, you, once you've got your license for 10, 15, 20 years, and you've done all the things, you've ticked all the boxes, how do you keep flying? And that's what ILAS is all about. It's about being able to economically operate an aircraft being able to be comfortable that you can fly 20, 30, 40 hours a year without breaking the bank and being able to be confident that you know the aircraft you're flying. Like this isn't all about building aircraft. This is also about owning aircraft. And like mm. in my case, like I, as I said, I, I grew up flying, you know, Cessnas, flying Pipers for 25 years. Um, my usual aircraft is a Piper Arrow. And I'd kind of reached that crossroads where I had done what I think a lot of people on the call have done, and probably a lot of your listeners have done. Your license is up for renewal every two years. I better get my 12 hours up. And I've yes. done, the, I've done mm. the crazy things like, you know, flying mm -hmm. from Dublin to Kerry to Sligo to Dublin, you know, with a week to go before your license is renewed. So you've got your 12 hours up. 
and that's kind of crazy things that we we do as pilots mm. so really if you look at the what, what are we trying to achieve here if there wasn't an organization like Eilis and a facility like permit flying there just wouldn't be ways for people i think i think a lot of people would just throw, throw the license away and just stop flying mm. so you know in my case i i bought a, a 10 year old aircraft again this is showing you don't have to build to fly permit aircraft i bought a 10 year old uh, zen air 601 uh, it's got a rotax engine it burns about 15 liters of unleaded an hour um, every time i fly that it costs me about 20 euro an hour which is about 10% mm. of what a rental aircraft would be. And it cruises along at 115, 120 knots. That's, that, that gives you the freedom to fly and takes away a lot of the concerns of pilots who are saying, you know, I've, I've done all this now. Am I going to go flying today? It might cost me 400 euro to fly to Waterford and back. Or am I going to go on a permit aircraft where it might actually cost me, you know, 40 or 50 euro? Michael, can I bring you in on this then in the case of safety being an issue then? Because uh, you've got uh, people flying uh, aircraft that they may have built themselves. They might be classic aircraft. In other words, they might be very old. How do you create a culture of safety in the organisation? Well, the, the individual has to keep the aircraft airworthy and build it to a specification. It, it has to be inspected by a designated ILAS inspector at certain stages, especially the critical stages of the build. And that's where, as Charles says, there's, there's a build manual and that comes from the ILAS procedures manual. So we're, we're basically following a formula that it means it, it, it has a, rest, a restricted type of airworthiness. So it, it allows it to be issued a permit to fly. It has to meet its inspection. And then afterwards, every year, there's an annual inspection on the plane, but the emphasis is, is on the owner to keep the maintenance up on it. And, I mean, there's no hard shoulder up there. So, I mean, if, you, if you're maintaining it yourself, you you want to keep it right. And so there's, there's a good incentive to make sure it's done. There is an inspection schedule and the IEA try to inspect each aircraft uh, with it at, at least every five years. So with the ILAS fleet of roughly 100 aircraft flying every year, you know, they're they're seeing about 20 every year as well. Nolmar, are you a lobbying organisation? Do you, do, you, do you try to influence? Well, I think we do insofar as we are representing our members' interests. I mean, for example, uh, Michael, Michael is currently engaged in some discussions and indeed negotiations in relation to airspace. Uh, but equally in terms of uh, pilot licensing, that has been a minefield, you know, since the EASA basic regulation was introduced and the whole flight flight crew licensing regime. So we've had a lot of dialogue with the IAA and they've been extremely receptive as well to concerns and to issues and to um, requirements and, and constantly uh, we, we are doing that. So I, I would say that um, there's a number of elements here, you know, apart from the aircraft itself, one is the licensing one, which is clearly the responsibility of the individual members, but co collectively we have a responsibility to to uh, establish um, what the issues are and what, you know, concerns might be. I mean, Cahill touched on this too. I mean, there's a, a very heavy regulation behind all of this. So it's a question of keeping up to date so we can best represent uh, members' interests. Mm. What's been, for example, the uh, effects of Brexit? Has it had an impact on things like insurance, on fuel, availability, etc.? Are these the kind of things that are bothering you? Well, just, <laughs> just if I can kick off, the, the, yeah. the, the uh, main concern at the minute is insurance. And a number of the traditional insurance brokers uh, servicing aviation in Ireland, there are very few brokers uh, offering aviation insurance in Ireland for general aviation. Uh, 
but a lot of the UK companies have not um, sought licenses or haven't registered within the EU. So once uh, Britain exited from the EU on the 1st of January, uh, many of the brokers, traditional brokers, are simply, you know, uh, extending policies and are not able to renew policies. So uh, it's uh, no secret to say that we're currently in discussion with a European broker who specialises in aviation and we're uh, trying to develop a scheme that might be made available to ILAS members that would uh, facilitate a um, insurance and insurance that's tailored to our needs but also that in keeping with our low-cost uh, ob objective that the cost would not be prohibitive because there's been fewer underwriters in the aviation market in recent years and of course when there's less players in the market it becomes a seller's market and the cost of premiums have increased fairly dramatically I would say in the order of 20 to 30 percent in the last year or so. No I would I would just say uh, Noel has summed it up um, the Brexit has a direct impact on us uh, in that way. Now, it, it will probably have impacts on us in other ways as well, but just it, it, your listeners may be interested in the fact that most aviation in Europe is regulated dire uh, directly from an organisation called EASA, the European Aviation Safety Agency. And, um, and, and that includes all commercial aviation and a lot of general aviation. And they maintain the certificate of airworthiness process that most aircraft have to satisfy. Permit aviation is, is a part of the exception. So uh, right across Europe, national aviation authorities uh, regulate their own individual activities in classic and classic and vintage and home-built aircraft, the sort of things that ILAS does. And so there, the regulations aren't uniform. There are bilateral agreements and there are multilateral agreements that allow us to fly into other countries, but it's not automatic. And what's likely to happen now is the regulations between Ireland and the UK uh, will probably diverge and so we it may be a little bit more difficult for us to fly around the whole island of Ireland in the future but we'll see how things go even at, even at this stage now to buy an aircraft in the UK and bring it into Ireland is uh, increasingly difficult because of Brexit because you're not operating within a single scheme the aircraft needs to get uh, an export C of A and then needs to be imported and so there's a whole lot of additional paperwork that will need to be done in the future. Well, we've talked a lot about regulation, permits and, and structures in place. I want to talk now about the fun. What's an organisation? What fun do you get up to when, when you can, when, when we're all able to get back to airfields? What happens? Well, perhaps that's a good, a good opening, uh, if I may just come in there and say that uh, in terms, and I'm touching on structures again, is that ILAS does operate an airfield and we have an airfield in County Wexford near Timon. And uh, we've tried in the past to organise at least three formal fly-in events per year. An annual fly-in in June, we'd have a, a breakfast fly-in probably around May, and uh, a harvest fly-in, as we call it, in, in August, early September. And that's a marvellous way of bringing 
members together and friends together. So there's a great social buzz that underlies a lot of what we do. Uh, that when you fly somewhere, you're not just flying from A to B, you're going somewhere, you're meeting friends, you're having a chat, you're having a bite to eat. And that's all part of the camaraderie that we've we've been able to foster. And sadly, in the last 12 months, because of COVID restrictions, of we haven't mm. been able to exercise that aspect of it. But that is a major part. Uh, I mean, most people are, are sort of passionate about aviation and there's a lot in common. And... Uh, I think that's a great uh, element of, of what we do. So uh, certainly uh, there's there's a lot more to it than just building and maintaining the aircraft and even flying the aircraft. It's a whole community now that has developed. And uh, I, I th- I'd like to think that, we you know, we have a, uh, a membership that's that's extremely broadly based in terms of backgrounds in aviation, uh, backgrounds in, in all aspects of aviation from from commercial pilots to to engineers and builders and and uh, various skills and they all bring something to the party and i think that's what what makes it interesting and we're unique i think in that sense that we have we have uh, such uh, a great cross-section of experienced people it's also worthwhile saying that uh, not everybody involved in ILAS is also involved in other parts of aviation. So you have farmers and teachers and mm-hmm. uh, accountants and uh, all sorts of people who uh, <laughs> have an interest in aviation and, you know, this is their outlet for that. But it, it is a relatively small community and you do come across people from the commercial world uh, at these fly-ins. They're, they're also owners of aircraft, uh, classic and vintage aircraft as well, or home-built aircraft. So it's a bit of a, an addictive uh, activity. Uh, it does tend to draw you in and it's, it's very interesting and all the, uh, all the facets of it are uh, very interesting. Charles, you were coming in there? Yeah, I was going to say that the fly-in is akin to Lourdes. You go there for renewal. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> and, 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 and I, I, I suppose one of, one of the, the key things about ILS membership as well is that when you, like certainly at fly-ins, or it doesn't even have to be a formal fly-in, like you fly into any, any airfield on a Sunday afternoon and there's a genuine interest in each other's aircraft as well. It's a little bit like, you know, a, a Ford Capri owner's club, whatever. Everyone's interested in everybody else's uh, aircraft. And you, you, you get a lot of, like if, if we fly in, for example, if I fly in somewhere in the Taylorcraft, a classic 75-year-old aeroplane, and people are interested. But equally, you know, if, if, if somebody flies in, in in an RV7 or whatever, great technology mm-hmm. airplane, people show a genuine interest in each other's aircraft because... Mm-hmm. It's 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 not all about you know it's it's not like everyone's flying a Cessna or everyone's flying a, a Piper. The aircraft are so different. There there are some fantastic pieces of information that can be imparted by the owners, which are really really uh, relevant to to everybody in the organisation. And that's not just at flying events. It's you know anytime we talk, be it on Zoom calls or be it at meetings or whatever. There's such a great level of knowledge, but equally you know it's a great level of interest in everybody else's project. You see, I, I have this idea too that there's also two levels of activity. One would be the educational stuff that you learn at an airfield and talking to other pilots. And then there's <clears throat> hangar talk. Backbiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's, there's always hangar talk. I mean, you always know who, who are the pilots at a bar. And I know your listeners can't see me, but it's the people moving their arms up and down as if they're flying yeah. or whatever. Like, there, there is all that. But that's, that's, that's not unique to... Uh, to private pilots, you know, you see that you see that everywhere. Um, but the hangar talk is 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 a lot of fun as well. You know, it's about 
the, the, the subject matter is uh, ranges from anything, but typically revolves around airplanes. Yeah, you have a kind of a license to, uh, well, exaggerate a little bit, isn't that it? I am very much looking forward to maybe getting to meet you all on an airfield one of these days and, and have the, a, a re-go of this same conversation. Um, uh, what I would say to you as we sort of come towards the end of our, of, of our podcast as well today, if there's somebody listening to us who hadn't, hadn't occurred to them that they should be with you, now we obviously know if they're a permit aircraft uh, operator or owner, they have to. But what about for anybody else who's thinking about it? What can you offer them? Guidance. Guidance, Charles. Yeah. What, at the bill stage, before you even start, maybe? Before the start, they come along, um, they have a natural interest, and they, they've obviously uh, something in, the, in view, and they just want to get some form of qualification that the machine is what they should be building. Because there is there's a practicality there, isn't there? You can't just decide to build an aircraft. It has to be on your list. That is correct. I mean, we've had some uh, strange, strange cookies down through the years. I had one guy who was ringing me up for about 10 days. He was going to build a Spitfire. And I'd, after about the sixth day of this, I looked at my watch one night and it was just closing time in the local pubs. <laughs> and uh, I, <laughs> I just um, advised him to go elsewhere. In in uh, not polite terms, I, I might add. Yes, we we get the general idea of that one. Noel Murphy, yes. Michael, I think um, very often the interest in aircraft mm-hmm. and possibly the interest in building an aircraft comes to people before they find ILAS and they ask around then how would they go about it and they find that ILAS is a pathway to allow them to do that. Uh, It doesn't have to be like that and if people are interested just in relatively low cost flying and um, uh, flying that they're where they're in control of the process substantially themselves then if they join the society we will provide them with links and mentors to guide them through their decision. Uh, You mentioned there the list of aircraft that we have at this stage, Charles will correct me, but I think there's over a hundred aircraft on that list. And so it's not an exclusive list or anything, but each new aircraft does take a substantial uh, uh, amount of work by both ourselves, our inspectors and uh, the airworthiness department in the uh, Irish Aviation Authority, because they need to approve the particular model uh, or type before uh, it's accepted onto our list so and and people read them people read the magazines which is great and they should and they see these really interesting planes and they think oh i'd love to build that um you know if if the if the interest lasts for a period of time and they're still they're still want to go ahead with it well then they definitely should uh, look us up and see what we're doing we'll put them in contact with somebody who's relatively local to them and can show them what the process involves and then they can decide if that's something that they would be interested in doing all right we'll go around to the windows one more time then for the last time i'm going to start with you charles your most memorable flight that's a good question it is <laughs> very good question uh I suppose I was coming up from um, London one evening to Dublin, at about twenty miles off the Irish, off the English coast. I noticed that fuel gauge was reading zero, so I had to put back into Liverpool. 
I was uh, found out what it was. It was actually a problem with the uh, fuel gauge. The <laughs> lead had become detached. So then I had the customs then dip the tanks to see how much fuel had used on the return journey. Very good. And they, they went to charge me for it because <laughs> it was considered taxable within the country. So obviously um, I um, wasn't too happy about that. And I, I, I was, that was about the most memorable one I had. Lovely. Noel Murphy, for you. Okay, Michael, I, I think the one that stands out for me is when I was doing my flight training, I was flying out of Trim and uh, I had gone solo in circuits, but I hadn't done a cross country solo. So my inspector, or sorry, my instructor wanted to pick up an aircraft at Kilrush. So the two of us flew down to Kilrush and I was supposed to fly back to Trim on my first sort of cross country solo. So anyway, I, I set off and I passed over Monster Evan and sort of turned right uh, from Kilrush and was heading towards Rathangan and I saw Clonbalogue on the map and I said, oh, I better give the lads in Clonbalogue a call on the radio to see if there anything happening, just really just out of courtesy. Um, so they asked me where I was and I said, well, I'm approaching Rathangan and they, uh, there was a silence on the other end of the radio for a moment and they said, um, uh, we're dropping some parachutists over Rathangan. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was in the middle of the <clears throat> Paralympics and um, or the, it was in the middle of the Special Olympics that were, was being held here in Ireland. And um, uh, they were doing this as a demonstration. And so I had to do a 180 degree, head back towards Monster Evan, find my way to Kilrush, which was visible, I think, from there. And I told people at Kilrush to stay away from Rathangan, that there's activities on that <laughs> afternoon. And uh, but then I had no I, my, my map wasn't any good. My route, <laughs> I, I was stuck. I had to figure out a way of getting home. Now, I could have landed in Kilrush, but I said I'd head on. So, look, I, I knew the road from uh, sort of uh, Athai up towards Kilcullen and Nace. So I, I followed the road up. I identified the race course in Nace and then sort of took a, a left uh, headed towards Enfield and up to Trim. So I tell you, I, I did kiss the ground that particular day when I got out of the plane, but it's memorable, yes. But but still, I, I've never gotten out of a plane without a smile on my face. And, and that's I think that's always good. I, I think you're proving my point, both about hangar talk and the fact that nobody so far has mentioned a glorious sunset over the Aaron islands or anything they're all oh my lord moments michael are you going to add to that list <laughs> i don't know about an oh my lord moment but I suppose my favorite sort of flying with eyelash aircraft is uh going and doing some formation stuff with uh with a couple of our cubs or meeting up with some other guys um out towards navin maybe going down the boyne and a nice evening like like this evening mm -hmm. in formation with two or three four cubs it's it's really nice because they're they're slow and they're they're not so noisy um, we had a great flight a few years ago into Mondello. Uh, one of my friends has a helicopter and um, we went either side of him with two cubs initially and then met up with some other members with, a, I think, a Cessna 120 and another super cub or two super cubs. And that was, you know, just things like that are fun. And yes, just recently during COVID, keeping within the five kilometres, uh, well, ish area or five nautical mile area, um, two of us did a nice formation flight up Runway 16, turn right down runway 28 and back around and out from the airport at 500 feet. So it was. You, you, you won't get to do that again unless you travel back in time, isn't that true? Make hail where the sun shines. But what I love about the ILA stuff is just the amount of aircraft that are available to people to, 
to look at buying a share in or to fly or to build or even go to an airfield. There's such a vast variety. And then even with the RVs, you know, they all look different. They all have little, um, you know, everybody's put their own stamp on them or customized something, different panels. It's just, you know, the world's your oyster with it. And there's something for everybody, everybody's taste and everybody's budget. Um, I mean, that's why I got into it. I, I did my license uh, in Weston. Uh, I converted it onto um, the tailwheel aircraft and ILAS allowed me to get into affordable flying. And it sort of blossomed here at the airfield with um, over the, over the uh, back then over 10 years ago, I suppose, with several different planes over the years. And um, it's just, it's made it really fun flying. And um, hopefully some of the kids will get into it as well. So it's, yeah, it's good to see. It's, uh, it's, it's, well, they're following in your footsteps by the sound of it already anyway. That's good too. Kyle, for you. Well, I, I kind of echo what Michael was saying there. You know, the, I, I think every flight you do, you enjoy. Uh, you know, my, my, my philosophy is probably like a lot of people uh, in, in, in private flying. If it's not fun, don't go up. You know, and, and you're better off being down here wishing you were up there. All the usual kind of stories you get. Mm-hmm. But, you know, flying for me is for fun, and that's that's the reason you do it. So every flight is, is enjoyable. Like I did a, a trip. I think one of the ones that brought it home to me for uh, the ILAS aircraft and the permit flying was a trip we did up to Scotland in, in the Zen Air. And I think the total, the total cost of fuel in that was probably less than 150 euro. You know, and that was from here to, to Derry, up to Isla, across the Campbellton, back to Belfast and back again. But in terms of the, the most memorable, I'll, I'll maybe just stray a little bit from permit aviation. And this is going way back in the depths of time. If you remember back when they used to have the air spectacular air shows in Indeed, um, yes. in Baldonnell. Mm. And I remember there was one particular year, I think it might have been 87 or 88. It was very, very windy. And I just got my PPL and I was flying into Baldonnell that morning because you were allowed to fly in and, um, you know, attend the show. And I remember flying in and it was a fairly stiff crosswind now that day. And uh, I was in a 150 uniform Charlie, you know, stressing, trying to get the crosswind landing in, landed, got down okay, touched down, taxied in. And a couple of guys came over and said, that was being fully commentated on from the speakers. The, 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 the show guy, the sort of work that you do at air shows, Michael, he, he had yes, been well. he, and he was kind of saying, if you watch now, he's going to come in pointing slightly differently and he'll just kick the rudder and land. And apparently I did it bang on cue. No idea oh. I was doing it, but it was, uh, it was one a, of those a days where you kind of go. A secret moment. Exactly. Yeah. Noel, final word with you then, I suppose. Well, I suppose, um, you know, I, I support the sentiments that, you know, no two flights are the same mm-hmm. and every flight is a new adventure. And I think that's very true because the conditions are always different. Um, I learned to fly originally with Iona in the Irish Aero Club days in Dublin Airport. So I was probably overly exposed in those days to an international airport. Yes, it's good but, for us. Uh, mm-hmm. When I moved on from there, I haven't flown. I hadn't flown out of Dublin since the mid 80s. And I went into, I suppose, grassroots flying, more basic and uh, didn't get to airports very often. And I I wasn't complaining. I was quite happy flying into farmers fields and little strips around the place. But back, it must have been, I think it was the 75th anniversary of Aer Lingus uh, around 2011. Uh, we were invited to um, join a lot of Aer Lingus uh, members and employees uh, 
for a celebration in Hangar 6 mm-hmm. and special permission was granted to allow Permit Aircraft to fly into Dublin Airport. Now, I hadn't been there since the mid-80s and uh, many, many of the aircraft we fly wouldn't even have transponders. So special indulgences were put in place and we actually met up in Trim Airfield beforehand and we were all put together in little formations so that we'd have a sort of a formation leader who had a transponder and the rest of us all strung along like Brown's cows. And that was an interesting experience. Uh, but it was fascinating for me going back into Dublin Airport. Uh, and that, as I say, that was 2011. And uh, it, it was an interesting day because there was a big social aspect to it. Lots of people, lots of things happening. And then you had to head home again afterwards. So that for me is just one of the highlights that comes to mind. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on Squawk 7000. This will not be our last conversation, but I guarantee you the next one will be under the wing of an aircraft somewhere uh, because that is where we are all, I suppose, at our natural best. And as soon as we can all get back into the air, we wish you all the very best. You have some activities maybe coming up, do you, for members? We have a fly-in planned for the 2nd of May, but at this point in time with... You know, the vaccination program being rolled out and, uh, you know, the current restrictions. It's just hard to know whether it'll happen or not. But we'd be fairly hopeful that our main fly-in in June will, will happen. But look, we just got to keep our fingers crossed and, and hope for the best. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. And we will put our links in the program notes to the website and where people can get more information. And uh, thank you again for joining us on Squawk 7000. You're very welcome. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Long Final from Squawk7000.ie. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and do tell your friends. 